Welcome to the PEDSNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and clinical assistant professor at Catholic University of America, and I'm here today with Duke University Accelerated BSN student, Sam Mahaney. Sam and I connected because he's enjoyed pediatrics and the pathology of congenital heart disease, but was looking for a practical application of this knowledge as an RN which is exactly the kind of multidisciplinary applied knowledge the PEDSNP does best. So for today's episode in our season talking all about babies, he and I will discuss what we can expect to see from an infant with an undiagnosed and undifferentiated congenital heart defect from a primary care perspective. We'll talk through history taking, assessment, and screening tools that can help inform the provider. Welcome to the PEDSNP, Sam. Dr. Carson, thank you for having me. I loved learning about congenital heart defects in class, and I'm eager to understand the everyday side of what I might see at the bedside and the red flags that warrant alerting a provider. Absolutely. First, tell me what you know about normal fetal circulation and the changes that occur postpartum. Of course. So from the first breath a neonate takes, circulatory changes start to occur. The umbilical cord is clamped and the mother is no longer providing nutrition, oxygen, or carbon dioxide removal for that infant. With those first breaths, oxygen vasodilates the vasculature of the lungs and the pulmonary vascular resistance starts to decrease, which was previously very high in utero since the placenta was providing oxygen for the fetus. That first breath also creates negative intrathoracic pressure allowing for passive flow of air into the lungs. With the increase in blood flow to the lungs and these associated pressure changes, there's also a shift in pressures in the heart. We used to have high right-sided pressures because the placenta was oxygenating the blood, but now the fetus's lungs are doing the work. So we see higher left-sided pressures, which closes the foramen ovale. The ductus arteriosus is the connection between the pulmonary artery and the aorta that bypasses the lungs and utero. When fetal lungs are still developing, a patent PDA allows for most of the blood to bypass the lungs and allows oxygenated blood to perfuse the rest of the body. Then postpartum with exposure to oxygen and decrease in maternal prostaglandins, the PDA begins to constrict and subsequently close. So now that the maternal circulation is no longer present, the ductus venosus also closes. Previously, this allowed the umbilical blood to bypass the liver, but now the infant's liver needs that blood supply. With all of these extra uterine changes in effect, fetal circulation becomes newborn circulation. Perfect. The timeline of this transition can play a role in the misdiagnosis of congenital heart disease in some infants. Remnants of fetal circulation can delay the presentation of congenital heart disease by days, weeks, or months, depending on the severity of the defect and the body's compensatory mechanisms. For instance, some babies present when their PDA closes because they have what we call a ductal-dependent lesion, where their systemic circulation was dependent on the connections that allowed deoxygenated blood to get to the lungs and the oxygenated lungs to get from the lungs to the systemic circulation. Other infants may present later on as blood flow becomes more problematic for the pulmonary or systemic circulation. Hence the reason for this discussion. Thankfully, screening measures take place both in the hospital and at regularly scheduled well-child visits 
which allows for continued surveillance. Exactly. Let's talk about how congenital heart defects might present and the systematic approach to identification. I think it's simplest to categorize congenital heart disease into pink, blue, and gray babies. These colors aren't sorting them into girls, boys, and non-conforming. Rather, it's a reference to their skin perfusion and therefore acyanotic versus cyanotic defects. I like to think about congenital heart defects from a pressures and resistance perspective. When we can grasp those general concepts, we can better understand pink, blue, and gray babies without having to go into detailed morphology of each individual defect. So when you say pressures and resistance, are we talking about how systemic vascular resistance and pulmonary vascular resistance affect the direction of shunts and the subsequent flow of blood? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Babies with acyanotic congenital heart defects have normal pulse ox saturations and therefore appear well perfused or pink despite their heart defect. This is because the pressures in the left side of the heart are greater than on the right, which is normal. And this means that the systemic blood flow is fully oxygenated, resulting in normal skin tone for their ethnicity. But eventually there's gonna be pulmonary overcirculation that leads to pulmonary congestion that presents with symptoms of congestive heart failure, such as tachypnea, crackles, and hepatomegaly, among others. Patients with critical congenital heart defects represent about 25% of patients with congenital heart disease, and they have low levels of oxygen in their systemic circulation. Most will need a surgical procedure to correct or palliate the defect in their first year of life. Babies with cyanotic heart disease have a cardiac lesion that reduces the amount of oxygenated blood delivered to the body. That results in cyanosis, or a bluish appearance of their skin and mucous membranes. Most of these defects get picked up on fetal ultrasound or in the neonatal congenital heart screen when they have a saturation that's less than 90%. Within the critical congenital heart defect category, there are defects that may present in the first month of life, which I call gray. These patients often have an obstructive or a ductal dependent lesion that presents in cardiogenic shock with poor perfusion as a result of having decreased systemic blood flow. Examples include coarctation of the aorta or aortic stenosis, where that PDA was providing systemic blood flow prior to its closure. The systemic vascular resistance is higher in the case of gray babies, which can lead to the same pulmonary congestion we see in pink babies in mild cases. But more severe cases will present in the first few weeks of life with hypoxemia and hypotension in circulatory collapse. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services added critical congenital heart disease to the list of recommended conditions to screen for in newborn screening measures in 2011. Fast forward to 2018, all 50 states and the District of Columbia have implemented critical congenital heart disease screening policies, with 98% of them mandating the screening measure. Thankfully, I've been exposed to congenital heart screenings when we assess newborns in my labor and delivery rotation. It's an important part of the birth history to review. Most babies are screened in the hospital or birthing centers, but if delivery took place at home, then the primary care provider should be sure to screen in the first few days of life. Why don't you tell us what you know about the critical congenital heart disease screen, Sam? Sure thing. The AAP or American Academy of Pediatrics provides guidelines on screening for critical congenital heart disease 
And the 2018 update from Martin et al. recommends that we evaluate the baby at 24 hours old or later and get pulse ox saturations in the right hand and one of the feet. Essentially, you want to see saturations at 95% or greater in both places and less than a 3% difference between the upper and lower extremities. So let's say the right hand and the right foot are both 96%, that's a pass. So now let's say the right hand at 99% and the left foot is 95%. Even though they are both greater than 95%, there's a difference between the two that is greater than 3%. That's considered a fail or positive. The screening would also be considered positive or failed if either the hand or foot had a saturation less than 90%. So now let's say the right hand is 89%. That's an automatic fail, no matter what the foot reading is. There's one more category of retest, and that's if the saturation is between 90 and 94% in either the right hand or a foot, or if there's greater than a 4% difference between the right hand and a foot. And in this case, the test should be repeated in an hour. If the screen is still positive, the child will need an echocardiogram to rule out congenital heart disease. We also might consider an infectious or pulmonary etiology of hypoxia when the baby fails a screen, but certainly congenital heart disease is high on the differential. Right, and it's my understanding that just because the screening is normal and the infant goes home, it doesn't mean that a congenital heart defect is definitely not present. Acyanotic defects might not present at or around birth. So when I'm in the primary care setting, what should I be looking for and listening to from parents and patients? Great question, Sam. Here's where we need our systematic approach to assessment. As always, your history and physical exam are invaluable. During the well visits, the provider will ask parents lots of questions about the medical history and how things are going. I like to start with perinatal risk factors, such as maternal infections, exposures, gestational diabetes, maternal medications for chronic conditions, such as seizures, and substance use, whether prescription or recreational, as these can put the fetus at risk for abnormal development of the heart in utero. Does the mother have a condition in her past medical history that might predispose the infant to congenital heart disease? Diseases such as lupus, insulin-dependent diabetes, or PKU may increase the risk of development of congenital heart disease. How was the newborn course? What was the gestational age and birth weight? Because premature and small for gestational age babies are at higher risk of heart defects. I'll ask if there are any other genetic or predisposing factors such as advanced maternal age or concerning pregnancy or family history, especially if there's a family history of congenital heart disease in the immediate family, because we want to uncover these in the history as well. There may be other pertinent family history items to uncover, such as sudden death or other known cardiac disease. Review the hospital discharge and note whether there was any neonatal distress at birth or whether there were any abnormal findings, features, or syndromes. Now we can ask about the infant since discharge. We ask about growth and development, sleep, nutrition and feeding, and elimination at every well visit. For me, growth and nutrition are the most telling because feeding is the work of the baby. And an infant with a clinically significant congenital heart defect will demonstrate difficulty with this important task. Listen for specific red flags from the parental report related to poor intake, taking an excessively long time to feed, 
only feeding small amounts really frequently, diaphoresis during feeding, poor weight gain, excessive lethargy, or even cyanosis or respiratory distress with feeding. Crying is another activity that impacts tissue oxygenation, so parents might note tachypnea, cyanosis, or sweating with crying. Now, much of what I talked about is related to babies, but congenital heart disease can go unnoticed or be acquired at older ages too. As kids grow, play becomes the work of the child. So reports of not being able to keep up with their peers on the playground could become worrisome. Since we're focusing on babies this season, we can save those stories for another episode. Are there any other physical exam findings I can look for as a nurse as we consider the possibility of congenital heart defect? Of course. I like that you're thinking ahead. Since feeding is so important, I want to look at the growth chart, right? You could obtain weight, length, and head circumference measurements. Remember that when congenital heart disease is beginning to impact growth, the weight will decline first from the child's normal trajectory without any other change to the length or head circumference. My favorite pediatric gastroenterologist explains poor weight gain in reference to a car. To make the car go, you have to put gas in it. When the car isn't able to go great distances, there's one of three problems with the fuel. One, there isn't enough fuel being put into the tank. This is underfeeding. Two, there's spillage of the fuel. This is a malabsorption problem. Or three, the engine is being overworked. This is our problem in cardiac disease because the heart is working in overdrive to perfuse the vital organs. After a prolonged time with insufficient calories to meet the metabolic demand, the baby's length will also begin to suffer. But the body makes a great effort to support brain growth, so head circumference is the last to be impacted. Next, you could obtain vital signs. Be alert for tachypnea, hypoxia, and tachycardia. Blood pressures aren't a required vital sign until well visits at age 3. But if you noted any abnormalities in the child's appearance or vital signs, you might be asked to obtain a four-extremity blood pressure to assess for an obstructive lesion like coarctation of the aorta or interrupted aortic arch. The blood pressure should be higher in the low extremities normally, but if there's an aortic abnormality, then you may note lower blood pressures in the lower extremities. Additionally, it's important to check pulses in all four extremities. They should be equal quality and without delay. I can definitely do that. I'm pretty good at basic pediatric physical exams, and I feel really strong with my assessment of respiratory rate and effort in the presence of any distress. Long sounds, pulses, skin perfusion. I can definitely identify the basic S1 and S2. And I learned from the article by Strobel and Liu that liver size or hepatomegaly beyond 2.5 centimeters below the costal margin is concerning. What are some of the advanced assessment features that the pediatric nurse practitioner will be looking for in the cardiac exam? Well, I'd say if you're confident in those aspects of the exam, then you're doing really well with assessing for congenital heart disease. There are some other findings that are important in the physical exam. I start with a general from the door assessment, sometimes referred to as a spidey sense, which is more formally known as the pediatric assessment triangle looking at the patient's overall appearance, breathing, and circulation. This will help you determine sick versus not sick in your gestalt impression. Then get more specific. 
Maybe the infant has dysmorphic features or a syndromic facies that could clue you into a certain defect. For instance, trisomy 21 is associated with atrioventricular defects. But actually, most children with congenital heart disease appear normally developed. As you mentioned, you're on the lookout for respiratory distress like tachypnea, retractions, head bobbing, wheezing, or crackles. And the cardiovascular exam basics of looking for diaphoresis, cyanosis, edema, skin warmth, pallor, or modeling are spot on. Cardiothoracic surgeons notoriously only feel the warmth of the toes as their cardiac exam. But in primary care, it's important to assess for central and peripheral pulses. Femoral pulses can tell you a lot about cardiac output. We know that some defects obstruct or restrict blood flow. Depending on the location of this obstruction, whether it's pre or post ductus arteriosus, we might notice a change in the pulse quality between the right arm and lower extremities, known as brachiofemoral delay. Having a normal S1 and S2 does not mean the absence of a defect. So listen for additional heart sounds like S3 or S4, which may indicate cardiomegaly or volume overload. You'll also listen for murmurs, which might be normal or expected, depending on the age of the infant. As many as 80% of children have an innocent murmur at some point in their lives. And remember, congenital heart disease doesn't always have to have a murmur either. Murmurs are hard. Sometimes it's really hard for me to hear them, especially around all the bowel and breath sounds. And there are a lot of qualities that go into this really minute sound. That's very true. We describe murmurs with intensity, that's the grade, timing in the cardiac cycle, location it's best heard, radiation, quality, duration, and pitch. They say that only students and cardiologists can hear grade one murmurs because they're listening so intently. Murmurs with greater intensity are often smaller defects because there's a higher degree of resistance to the blood flow. Kind of like a garden hose when the hose is on and you put your thumb over the opening to spray water, the sound gets louder as you make the hole smaller? Yes, and the water becomes more turbulent, which is what makes the murmur when auscultating the heart. So now what? Will we refer to cardiology or should we be getting them to the hospital? Good question. It depends. In a hemodynamically stable infant with concerning history and physical for congenital heart disease, we want them evaluated somewhat urgently by cardiology, like within a couple of days. In the meantime, the provider can think about what resources in primary care are reasonable to obtain prior to their visit with cardiology. Do you have access to a chest x-ray to evaluate the cardiac silhouette and lung fields? Do you have access to an electrocardiogram where you can learn about the electrophysiology of the heart, the forces of ventricular contraction, hypertrophy, chamber dilation, and rhythm? Both of these diagnostic tests are relatively easy and inexpensive to obtain, along with pulse oximetry. These can be great screening tools to use when there's an abnormality that might change your management and help you realize that the child needs more emergent evaluation. If the tests are reassuring, then cardiology can also order an echocardiogram to examine the intracardiac anatomy and function. Okay, and the babies with red flags go straight to the hospital for emergent evaluation, like changes in their respiratory effort, irritability or lethargy, cyanosis, hypoxia, signs of decompensation while feeding or crying. 
pulse quality variability between upper and lower extremities or signs and symptoms of shock. Exactly. I'd also have a low threshold for emergently referring a child with symptoms suspicious for congestive heart failure, pathologic murmur, or social constraints that could be a barrier to continuity of care. One of my preceptors from graduate school is an awesome PNP in primary care. She told me a story about a patient where she noticed a murmur on this full-term infant at the newborn visit, and she was worried because the femoral pulses weren't as strong as they should have been. When she considered the fact that the mother had multiple social issues weighing on her, she pursued getting an urgent echo that day, even though the baby looked well. She remembered that he was feeding well, already had yellow CD stools, and was only mildly jaundiced to the nipple line. He was vigorous and well, but she had this sinking feeling about this murmur that wasn't on the hospital discharge summary, and his weak pulses, combined with a mom who was buried in social and family constraints, all that pushed her to pull some strings, call in favors, and get an echo that day. And thank goodness that she did, because he had a critical coarctation of the aorta, he was immediately started on prostaglandins and was life-flighted to the closest pediatric cardiac ICU. I reached out to find out how he was doing, and she said that he's now a thriving elementary schooler. Wow, it's really great to hear a real-life example of how this congenital heart defect presented. He could have decompensated very quickly if his PDA closed. Yes. He's one of those patients that would have been considered a gray baby with critical congenital heart disease because the lesion was ductodependent and he would have developed circulatory collapse if the ductus closed. She wanted me to remind all of you to trust your clinical exams and advocate for the patient in the face of confounding struggles. That's great advice for me as a new nurse. That's great advice for every member of the multidisciplinary team. We can apply that wisdom to any barrier because although we're talking about cardiac evaluation in primary care today, the principles carry over to every body system. It was lovely to have you today, Sam. Thanks for having me. That was Sam Mahaney, ABSN student at Duke University. I wanted to thank Dr. Jennifer Monty, pediatric acute care nurse practitioner and faculty at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital for copy editing our script today and Dr. Gigi Gura, the PNP who diagnosed the critical coarc, for sharing her story and wisdom with us. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PEDSNP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PEDSNP. You can see show notes and references at www.thepeedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You could save a newborn's life. And Becky Carson, take care.